Hey guys, we're going to do a slight break in the format for this week's episode instead of doing a cold open. Today's episode is about baseball history, so I wanted to give you guys just a few cliff notes to kind of set you up for what we'll be talking about for the next 40 minutes. My guest today is a writer who's contributed to The Atlantic, The New Yorker, Slate, The Daily Beast, but we're here to talk about a book he has just written called Our Team, the epic story of four men and the World Series that changed baseball. Luke Eplin is on the show today. It is a very compelling, incredibly gripping book about the 1948 Cleveland Indians, the last Cleveland team to win a World Series, so right there in and of itself is kind of of historical interest, but also the first integrated team in baseball history to win a World Series, thanks to the efforts of Hall of Famers Larry Doby and Satchel Paige. Larry Doby had integrated the American League in 1947 in July of that year, but struggled initially, and it played sporadically throughout the rest of the season. So 1948 was the year he really put himself on the map, and we're going to get into it a lot in the interview to follow. Satchel Paige, in 1948, was 42 years old, and when Cleveland owner Bill Vex signed him that summer, it was initially viewed by the country as well. That's just Bill Vex being a gimmicky owner, because Bill Vex liked to get his name in the papers as much as possible. Turned out Satchel Paige still had his shit together, like a lot. If he had not been on Cleveland that summer, they probably would not have won the pennant, let alone the World Series. The book is also about Bill Veck and his efforts to draw two million fans that summer to Cleveland, which, when you remember what Cleveland attendance was like for most of the 1980s, 1970s, etc., that in and of itself feels like a miracle. And finally, it covers Bob Feller, who for most of his career to that point, was the all-American story. Grew up on a farm in Iowa. Dad cut out a baseball field. Very field of dreamsy. Like, made the major leagues at 17, struck out the same number of batters as his age, and was clearly became one of the biggest stars in baseball from that point forward. 1948 was the first year Bob Feller struggled, and Cleveland reacted like, you're getting old? What the hell, dude? You know, like sports fans are wont. So we just discussed kind of Bob Feller's beginning of his decline phase as well in this interview. I think you're really going to like it. It's, it's really fascinating. The book is incredible. Again, it's called Our Team, the epic story of four men in the World Series that changed baseball. The author is Luke Eplin. This is Three Strikes, You're Out, the Outsports Baseball Podcast, episode number 75, the Barry Zito episode. My name, of course, is Ken Schultz, contributing writer to Outsports and Baseball Prospectus, as well as fully vaxxed comedian. And without further ado, hit the twib music. Let's get this one started. book about the last Cleveland Indians team to win a World Series in 1948. And in the wake of 2016, I am so happy and relieved to say the last Cleveland Indians team to win a World Series. Uh, It is a fascinating story of four Hall of Famers and four of the most interesting people in baseball history whose lives intersected in a very important year, not just for Cleveland, but for baseball in general. Uh, Between Satchel Paige, Larry Doby, Bill Veck, and Bob Feller, and I wanted to ask you to kind of start off. Was there one player story in particular that kind of drew you to this project, or was it kind of the combination of all of them? It was Bill Veck's story. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a small town outside of St. Louis. Um, I'm a diehard Cardinals fan with very little knowledge of the Cleveland Indians and their their history. Um, but my grandpa was a diehard St. Louis Browns fan. As you know, uh, before the uh, 
before like the 1950s, St. Louis had two uh, major league baseball teams, the Cardinals who were usually good and the Browns who were almost always terrible. Um, my grandfather was an unusual man. He was one of the, the bigger fans of the Browns. He used to work during the war in an airplane factory and sort of hop streetcars and go to see the, the Browns after his shift. So I grew up hearing sort of stories of the Browns. I had a deeper knowledge of, of, of that team than a lot of people did since they, they'd left well before I was born. Um, and of course, anybody who knows anything about the Browns knows that Bill Beck was the last owner of that team. So I kind of set out at first to th see if I could find a way to write about the Browns in a narrative fashion that could uh, perhaps land a book deal. Um, and I kind of quickly realized that, no, I don't really think that's possible. Not a lot <laughs> of people know about that. But what I did do was I went to the New York Public Library. Um, I took out the sporting news uh, uh, papers that they had from 1946 to 1948, which was the heart of when Bill Beck owned the Cleveland Indians. He was the owner of the Indians before he was the owner of the Browns because I wanted to just get sort of background information on him if I was going to write about the Browns. And I was sort of flipping through the, the, the issues of the sporting news, um, reading them almost like a novel. And I kept seeing these other characters come to the forefront um, while I was reading articles on Bill Beck. And that was Larry Doby, Satchel Page, Bob Feller. And it was really through sort of going through these, these years that I, I saw that the real story was here and that you could tell a story about um, integration that was different than the one that is often told through these four men, two white, two black, because they each represented a different facet of the integration experience that was happening at the time. So that was my sort of way into that story. Yeah, when you're talking about Bill Veck's tenure as ownership of the Cleveland Indians, it's impossible to tell that story without telling the story of the integration of the American League, because that is his greatest contribution to baseball. Uh, in addition to, of course, sending little people to bat and fireworks and bat day and all that. But yeah, integration tops all that, especially in a league that was dominated by franchises like the Yankees and Red Sox that are historically uh, opposed to integration. So he was bucking the trend of not just most of the owners, but especially the powers in the American League at the time and deserves a lot of credit for his bravery in doing so. Yeah, I think that I, like probably a lot of people, knew Bill Beck through his sort of promotions and the sort of uh, fan-friendly things that, that we now take for granted at ballparks, whether that would be sort of scoreboard antics or uh, it, promotions before games, things like this. And in a lot of ways, that is a disservice to his legacy um, in two different ways. One was that, as you said, I think integration is the most sort of important thing that he he did. He was somebody who was sort of hell bent on integrating um, through both practical, through both sort of idealistic reasons. He he was um, somebody who joined the NAACP. He was somebody that spoke out against residential segregation. He really did sort of believe in in the the larger issues in his his heart, but also through very practical means. Like he was somebody who understood how to play sort of money ball of the 1940s. And if there was no free agency or the trades were limited, he was looking where others weren't. And that would be in the Negro leagues. He wanted to build a championship in Cleveland as quickly as possible. And so he knew that he would have to see seek talent uh, where others weren't seeking it. And that sort of gets at the second part of his legacy, which was that he was an exceptional baseball mind. Like, I mean, to take the Indians who were a sixth place team in 1946 and convert them into a championship contender, in fact, winner in just in two short seasons 
is phenomenal. It's 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 out of this world. He did the same thing when he he got the White Sox the first time. He did the same thing when he owned the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, a minor league team before he owned the Indians. He converted those franchises that were down on their luck into winners. He his baseball instincts and his sort of trade prowess and everything like that was exceptional. And I think that his sort of reputation as being sort of this P.T. Barnum of baseball um, really eclipses just what an intelligent uh, athletic mind he was. And what's also interesting about the way that he went about integrating the American League through Larry Doby is that he was also a leader who had both the patience and foresight to, to see that through Doby's struggles in his first year in 1947, he still had one of the generational athletic talents of the game, and it would eventually shine through. And that came through for him in, in incredibly well in the 1948 season. Yeah, Larry Doby, when he came into the Indians in 1947, was 23 years old. He'd been a star in the Negro Leagues on the Newark Eagles, but Vex's sort of method of integration, which was wildly different than Branch Rickey's, who practiced a lot of... Um, he practiced patience on the front end with Jackie Robinson, where he uh, he signed him in October of 1945. Ricky then gave Jackie Robinson an 18-month sort of apprenticeship period in the minor leagues, where Robinson went to play on the Montreal Royals. Um, and so by the time Robinson uh, actually integrated the Dodgers in April of 1947, um, he'd had time to sort of acclimate to an all-white dugout and the sort of uh, issues and and abuses that he was going to be facing. Larry Doby was thrown right into the fire. Um, he went for, uh, literally overnight from the Negro Leagues to the Major Leagues, and he suffered tremendously. It was kind of a shock to his system. Um, there was disruptions in the clubhouse, all this sort of stuff. And the trend at that time, and that would continue through the 50s and 60s, was that if a black player did not excel right away, um, if he was more sort of a marginal player or if, or if somebody who needed uh, maybe a little bit of uh, an apprenticeship period, he was either cut loose or, or sent down to the minors. And um, Vec had the foresight to practice patience with this, to to give Doby the space and the time that he needed to find his footing to to overcome these these sorts of things. And I mean, if he hadn't done that, the Indians quite simply would not have won the World Series in 1948. Right. Yeah, there are two scenes that kind of play out in my mind when you kind of describe the both before and after of Larry Doby's process of integrating the American League. The first one is the train ride from New Jersey on the way to Chicago to integrate the Indians, where you can just feel the tension coming off the page just in terms of the turmoil he must have felt in that, that experience, realizing what he was up against, what he was about to step into and not knowing how his future was going to turn out. And then just a little over a year and three months later is the famous moment from game four of the 1948 World Series where his home run goes a great deal toward the Indians winning and taking a three to one lead. And then the famous picture of the starting pitcher, Steve Gromek, embracing him in the locker room that's on the front page of every newspaper across the country in 19 goddamn 48. Yeah. And that tells you that that is the payoff in terms of Vex patience and the risk he took and his willingness to to uh, believe that he still had this generational athletic talent on his team. Yeah, it's 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 great. It's it's a great scene that is very well reported in the black press at the time when Dobie found out that he was um, going to be signed by the Indians. It was at the very beginning of July of 1947. Um, 
I think it's like July 2nd that he finds out about it. And he stays with the Newark Eagles for another game on July 4th, Independence Day, 1947. And he is just kind of, you know, nervous, jittery beside himself. Um, He does hit a home run in that game, but he also commits several errors. He is just kind of, his mind isn't there. And right after that game, he has to sort of shower, just book it to Newark uh, Penn Station. And he's sitting there in the train terminal And there's reporters around him. There's others around him. And he is just, it's kind of hitting him that he's about to travel to a place extremely far away and foreign. And it just, I I can't even imagine what one must feel like at that time, particularly because he had so little time to prepare himself for this sort of thing, to really just wrap his mind around what it was going to be like. And he's just kind of muttering to himself and he's like telling his wife how scared he is and, all this, I mean, you can just feel that uh, that uh, that he—it's it, it, a journey that will change his life forever, and he knows it. Um, and the, the sort of interesting thing about the sort of photo that happens in the the World Series is that after that photo happens, Dobie hits this home run in the fourth game of the World Series. It really is the home run that gives Steve Gromek, who is kind of a marginal pitcher. Um, a victory in game four and Gromek throws his arms around Dobie afterward, knowing that if Dobie hadn't hit that home run, it could would have gone to extra innings. The Indians might've lost all this sort of stuff. It really was Dobie's home run that gave Gromek that win. Um, And it's a spontaneous gesture. It's like what Dobie kind of says after that was that when he's in the dugout with his white teammates, everybody is sort of calculated around him. Some of them are saying to themselves, how much do I want to embrace this guy? Because there were people that were, that didn't want him there, that, that were unsure of his presence, that were, did not want integration to happen or felt threatened by Dobie's presence, that they were going to lose playing time and all that sort of stuff. So even though certain Indians players were um, friendly toward him, Joe, Joe Gordon, Bob Lemon, people like that. There was always a sort of distance between him and his teammates that happened. But what you saw whenever Steve Gromek threw his arms around him was this spontaneous sort of outswelling of emotions in a way that Dobie hadn't experienced since he left the Eagles. And Dobie kind of says that that was like the first moment that he felt any sort of acceptance on mm-hmm. that that team, it was kind of the logical endpoint of that journey that he he made um, to get onto the Indians, and it took, you know, over a year for that to happen. I, I think he says that I finally someone expressed their emotions to me, mm. and I, I mean, even that line is heartbreaking. I mean, it's even though it's a happy scene, it's just you can feel the hurt in it. And uh, Dobie wore his emotions on his sleeve and he was not shy about talking about the, the struggles that he went through. Yeah, it's, it, it really emphasizes just how much of an obstacle it was to feel like you belonged as a black person in baseball in the 1940s, where your first moment of acceptance, you have to hit an actual home run that wins an actual World Series game to feel like <laughs> you belong. That's uh, yeah. That that and, and it's it is a moment of triumph and and yeah. It's, when you, when you describe it like that, it, it cuts straight through the heart. And one of the, re- uh, the the big thing that drew me to picking up your book in the bookstore was that it was telling Larry Doby's story because I believe it's one of the most undertold stories in baseball. That between Jackie Robinson's debut in April of 1947 and Doby's debut in July of that same year, in those three months, racism didn't end. So Larry Doby faced the exact same obstacles that Jackie Robinson faced and had to 
go through the same living hell that he did with nowhere near the fanfare. And I want to ask that when you write a story like this, do you feel an extra responsibility in elevating Larry Doby's story for a, a wider audience like that? Oh, yeah, tremendously so. I mean, this book took me five years to write, and I think it was because I wanted to make sure that I um, did it justice, um, that I, I sort of looked at every angle around it and sort of put it within its proper context and things like that. And I always wanted to make sure that I wasn't ever sort of entering into Larry Doby's head or anything like that. I wanted to sort of, you know, uh, tell the story through his sort of words and things like that. It, it, it was, it was, it was a tricky sort of book to write, but um, yeah, Doby himself talked about that throughout his entire life that, um, that he, he even sort of thought that he might've gotten it even slightly worse than Jackie Robinson at the time. Cause Robinson was the first, he was a pioneer. He attracted press wherever he went. He was playing in New York city, the media capital of the country. He did excel. He struggled in his first month or so with the Dodgers, but then he quickly turned it around and excelled pretty quickly. Um, leading his team to the world series that that first year, whereas Dobie uh, played in Cleveland, he was much less known than Jackie Robinson. He was, uh, he got sort of a lot of fanfare around his first week, but then because he was riding the bench, most of that first season, um, the press was press reports were much scarcer than that. And so Dobie felt like he was going through the same thing that Robinson was going through, but without the sort of shield of the press sometimes to, to, to lessen it. Um, so, yeah, it, it was, it, you know, Dobie talked a lot about sort of isolation and alienation and things like this, having to go to separate hotels from your teammates, or even if you were in the same hotel as your teammates, being by yourself. The teammates bunked together at this time, but there was no social practice of a white teammate bunking with a black teammate. So Dobie was often by himself. And even if they wanted to ask Dobie to go to dinners with, with him, white players had to worry about will a restaurant accept him and things like that. So they often just didn't. Um, and as I said, there was animosity on the team toward Dobie. And so he was sort of, he was going through a lot of these sorts of things alone, isolated, alienated, and he would call Jackie Robinson and they would talk to her. Cause these were the two, these were two men, perhaps the only two men who understood what it was like to be going through this at the time. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many, so many factors there with Dobie. Yeah, and that makes me think that uh, another thing that Jackie Robinson had eventually going for him was after his first couple of years in the National League, the gag order got taken off and he got to speak right. his mind. And he often got attacked for it uh, by a un very unsympathetic white press, but he did express who he was and his thoughts. And he got, got to have a platform that amplified his thoughts. Larry Doby, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression is throughout his career was mostly just portrayed as this moody, taciturn fellow. And the general media approach to him was, why are you so upset? As if he didn't have every conceivable reason to be moody and upset. Yeah, Dobie was somebody who, um, he was much more quiet and introverted than Jackie Robinson. He, um, throughout his life, I talked to one of his high school teammates and Dobie was the only black player on their football team that won the, uh, the high school championship. And when he would get the ball, audience would, would chant things like Amos and Andy and things yeah. like this. Yeah. And whenever Dobie was having to go through these things that his white teammates didn't, didn't really quite understand, he said that instead of lashing out, Dobie would burrow in. Mm -hmm. He would sort of, um, he would become quiet. He would withdraw. He would sort of separate himself. He, he sort of processed these things internally. 
Um, and that sort of carried on whenever he was sort of in, in the majors there. And a lot of people sort of interpreted this as sort of surliness or moodiness or something like that, rather than sort of looking at what is causing this? What is the root cause of what's going on here? There, you particularly see sort of white sports writers um, sort of talking about the the fact that that Dobie could be this amazing athlete if only he could get out of his head or 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 get over himself without sort of saying, well, he could be an amazing athlete if it wasn't for the racism that he was dealing <laughs> with. Um, yeah, there wasn't that sort of that sort of thought process at that time, and so Dobie um, was was somebody who sort of went through highs and lows in terms of statistics throughout his career. He did fight back in some ways. I mean, I think that um, he in later in his career, this isn't in my book, but uh, I think it's 1957. He gets hit by Art Dittmar, who is a New York Yankees pitcher and he charges the mound and just Dex Dittmar. Hmm. And it's like the first sort of black player to charge the mound. Wow. And there is, it leads to this, bench clearing brawl but there wasn't any you know there wasn't any sort of uh you know a black player decking a white player um it, it didn't lead to any other sort of racial sort of thing like that it was just kind of like this is something that happens in baseball <laughs> and uh so yeah i mean some people i there was an article i believe by a professor named lewis moore who talked about the significance of Dobie decking art ditmar hmm. um so yeah, that's something to 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 look up, and and so in that way he did. I mean, that's decking someone is speaking your mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Gosh, I, I kind of wish someone would have had the foresight to ask, could you send that uniform to the Hall of Fame that day? He chose yeah, totally. Like, yeah. <laughs> the day we knew we'd arrived as as a country was the day Larry Doby decked Art Dittmar. I, I like that <laughs> yeah. a lot. Stick around. We're going to talk about the sometimes brilliant, sometimes problematic, always cranky old bastard Bob Feller. After this, one of the other aspects of your book that really intrigued me, uh, and I thought uh, really kind of changed my my viewpoint of what's a well known baseball story up to this point, was how your approach you approached Bob Feller's career trajectory. That up until pretty much until I read your book, I've been used to the the basic narrative of Bob Feller is the all American field of dream story. He grew up on a farm right. in Iowa. His dad cut out a baseball diamond in the middle of a cornfield for him. Turned out he had preternatural talents that he developed every day in the farm was the story of the self-made man. And this is the first time uh, I've read the Bob Feller narrative through a much more modern prism where we look at this and go, yeah, there's a lot of white privilege baked into your story, Bob Feller, that no one really wanted to talk about in the 1940s. Yeah, there is a bunch of white privilege in that sort of thing. And and I think that the reason why I put Feller in, in contrast with Satchel Page throughout the book is that they're they're sort of the best white and black pitchers of their time and you can see the way that bob feller can leverage his narrative in ways that page couldn't i mean one of the first things that page does i mean that bob feller does whenever he breaks through the majors at age 17 and immediately starts setting strikeout records is hire an agent so that he can get endorsements so that he can sort of rake money in off of his name and off of his story. I mean, Bob Feller, everybody sort of thinks of him as this sort of all-American boy, um, things like that, but he was an incredible entrepreneur, and he had a sort of business savvy within him, as his father did too, that that I think is eclipsed by the sort of simple homespun 
narrative that is often formed around him. Like Feller knew the value of that story and he cashed in on it, not only during his playing career, but for the rest of his life. Like he, the, the narrative in some ways was as valuable as his right arm. Um, Satchel Page was, I think, equally, if not more entrepreneurial than Bob Feller. I mean, if you think about what Page was able to do during the Depression, a time whenever the Negro Leagues are either in a state of collapse or in dire financial straits, Page builds himself up into sort of a one-man franchise that is making as much as the biggest stars of the major leagues. And he's doing that without the sort of endorsement money and sort of barnstorming uh, trips uh, planning that Feller can do, but Page necessarily can't. He couldn't sort of do this sort of major cross-country tour that Feller put together, renting airplanes and stuff like that, but he still is making as much as Feller. Um, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. I don't think that there has been a better entrepreneurial athlete that this country has ever known except for Satchel Paige. And I would put Michael Jordan in there as well. What he did during the Depression is extraordinary. And so these were two men who were sort of linked together, both through pitching and through sort of entrepreneurial savvy and, um, you know, ways of sort of using their name and stories to, 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 to advance themselves. But Feller is backed by an enormous amount of, uh, of privilege that, that, that Page just simply doesn't have. And that privilege is something that disallows Feller from seeing Page clearly. Like people are, would say like, oh, you're facing all these, these great black ballplayers during your barnstorming tours. Could any of them make the majors? And Feller sort of uses his own narrative to be like, well, if basically if, if they were that good enough to be in the majors, they'd be in the majors already. It's, it's sort of disallowing him from seeing the obstacles and barriers that black athletes had to face that he simply didn't. And so in a way, it's, it's a sort of blinding agent for Feller as well. Yeah, it's one of one of the hallmarks of white privilege, especially as someone who eventually got to be as successful as an entrepreneur as Bob Feller, is that when you get in the position of power as one of the biggest entrepreneurs in the game, you then get to tell your story at and have it amplified by every platform that base, organized baseball touched at that point. So, of course, Bob Feller would kind of leverage and use that homespun narrative to kind of amplify his brand, I guess, to use a modern term uh, back in the 1930s and 40s. And meanwhile, Satchel Paige, as you described, spent his entire career as a self-made man and was successful and only occasionally got amplified when a writer for like the Saturday Evening Post would happen to stumble by and write a story about him up until the point where he joined the Indians. But um, I guess an example of the success of Satchel's particular brand of entrepreneurship is the scene that you describe his first game where he comes out of the bullpen with the Indians, where that just seemed like an event of events. Yeah. There, I mean, during the summer of 1948, Bill Vex signs him in, in midway through the 1948 season, largely because Feller is struggling that year. It's sort of an irony mm-hmm. that uh, these two men that are linked, Page gets his, his break because Feller is having a subpar season in some ways. Um, and, it was one of those things where every every white fan, I mean, not every, but vast majority of white fans knew of Satchel Paige. They'd heard the name. They'd known sort of the, the mythology. Even if you didn't know anything about the Negro Leagues, you had most likely heard tell of Satchel Paige. And so now he's finally in the majors. And it's just the sort of opportunity to see him and to see what all the fuss was about kind of set the nation into a frenzy. And... Um, 
you know, whenever Page was warming up that first day that he came in from the bullpen to pitch on the Cleveland Indians, there were people laughing in the stadium because they, some people thought that this was a clown. And that was a sort of like, that was sort of a stereotype that white, white fans and some players had of black players that they were performers. First of all, they weren't necessarily, you know, athletes, they were performing and that some people believe that Satchel Paige was just the best performer then sort of a, almost like a minstrel sort of show. Um, and so whenever Paige pitched, there was a lot of laughter and he gives up a single to the very first batter. And it did kind of seem then like, Oh no, like, is this, was this like a very, uh, not very well calculated move on Bill Beck's part to bring him to the majors. But Paige just immediately just shrugged off the single as he always did and just proceeded to sort of mow down the batters. And after that, he he goes on this tremendous tear to the point where when the Indians play in Chicago against the White Sox and they announce that Paige is pitching, the Comiskey Park could hold about 50,000 people, 70,000 people sort of mm. bum rushed their way into the stadium that day. They're, the crowds were so massive and voracious that they literally tore out the turnstiles and <laughs> ushers were hiding in the bathroom because they didn't want to have to deal with, you know, all this overflow crowd. It was just like this. They, 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 they were not going to miss seeing Satchel Paige. Um, it was, you know, uh, incredible. <laughs> wow. So in order to cause a near ride at Comiskey Park, you either had to have Satchel Page pitching or blow up a Bee Gees record. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Both of them had to do with Beck. So, yeah. 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 He's always there. <laughs> yeah. I, the scene that you describe in the book, and it's it's interesting that, that uh, the thing that sticks out in your mind are the, the people that left, because what stuck in my mind of Page's first entrance from the bullpen for his first game with Cleveland was the crowd of 70 or 80,000 in Municipal Stadium at the time just losing their damn minds watching him walk to the mound. And I read that, and the thought that hit me was, man, I wish Enter Sandman existed back in 1930. <laughs> that's a closer entrance right there. There's a really poignant passage. I believe it's, I can't remember the book it's in now, but Satchel Page's son, who wasn't, I don't believe he was alive by this point, but he said that the, the thing that he thinks about often is his dad walking to the mound that first game on the Indians uniform that sort of because you had to sort of walk that long distance from the bullpen to the mound and just sort of I mean he'd spent over 20 years in the Negro Leagues being told if only you were white and now he's 42 years old and the stadium is packed and it's like it's finally happened at a point where even Paige himself seemed to have given up hope that it was even going to happen and I mean, the sort of emotions that you must have been feeling, I, I can't even, I mean, I didn't try to go into his head, but I mean, you have to sort of think to yourself too, that like Satchel Page by that point had become a legendary person to the point where, you know, or at least a mythological one in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the, this country's athletic folklore. And if his stint in the majors had been a disaster, if he had, you know, been too old or, or if he'd been kind of got bombed out of the league, that would have forever affected his narrative and it could have really, you know, affected the way that we remember him. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, there was a lot on his shoulders, not only in terms of his own sort of personal desire to be in that place, but also his, his financial future going forward and just the pride of his generation that did not have the opportunity to cross over into the league. People like, 
Buck Leonard or Josh Gibson or people like this that should have been in the majors, but were never going to be. And Page kind of represented all of that generation in himself. And so, I mean, that is one of the more consequential walks to the mound that baseball has ever known. Yeah. And as you point out in the narrative, he not only pitched well, he shoved for several starts after that at, at a time where Cleveland needed somebody in the pitching staff to step up because Feller was having such a subpar year. Yeah. And Cleveland at that time had only won one world series, 1920. And since then they'd never really been last, but they'd never been first. They'd always sort of charged out of the gates and they'd be like, Oh, is this Cleveland's year? And then around July or August, they would sort of peter out. Uh, The columnist Shirley Povich said, you could always tell it's spring if the Indians are in first place because (laughs) spring does not last. And so that was the exact sort of period of the season, July and August, where the Indians normally just hit their swoon. And Page really prevented them from doing so. He got all of his six wins during that time period. And so, I mean, it was the sort of boost they needed to get over that sort of psychological hump mm-hmm. that, uh, that the franchise suffered from. And uh, so here's a hypothetical. In a world where the Red Sox or the Yankees aren't owned by insane racists, and one of them signs Satchel Page, do they win the 1948 pennant? Yes, I do believe they do. Yeah, because I mean, the Indians, the Indians, Red Sox and Yankees were all tied with like a week left to go in the season. And so really every single win counted. The Indians and the Red Sox ended up uh, ended the season tied and they had to go to a playoff game. Um, but if if either of them had signed page and gotten those six wins, then then they would have they would have overtaken the Indians. I mean, I think that without page and Dobie, pay, the fact that Beck integrated was the reason why they they won that that pennant Mm -hmm. and the first integrated team to win a world series after that as well yeah and uh last question i want to bring up while i still have you here um Mm. and this is something that i did not know until reading your book is that the 1948 indians have a little bit of houston astros to them (laughs) and uh i was kind of curious that is the little bit little bit of sign stealing that it did toward the end of that season does that at all taint kind of this otherwise incredible inspiring story and victory? Yeah, so Bob Feller, uh, Bob Feller volunteered for the war right after Pearl Harbor, very nobly, and he also volunteered to go into battle duty, which he didn't have to do. And he gets sent on a battleship, uh, the USS Alabama, and some of his duties are looking for sort of uh, – planes coming in from the distance using these sort of high-powered telescopes. And after the war, he takes one of those telescopes home with him sort of as a souvenir. Um, During the 1948 season, um, the Indians had a lot of home games at the very end of the year, and they were locked in this tremendous pennant race. So somebody got the idea to use that high-powered telescope, put it into the scoreboard at Municipal Stadium, and aim it at the catcher's uh, fingers when he's giving the sign to the pitcher. Bob Lemon, who manned the scope uh, during some games, said that, that that telescope was so powerful that he could see the dirt underneath uh, the catcher's fingers while he was doing this. Wow. And then they would sort of give the sign out through the scoreboard, like, you know, through various gestures, like a straight arm could mean a fastball, a bent arm could mean a curveball, that sort of stuff. Um, Bob Feller never apologized for this. He basically said that Sign stealing at that time was rampant. Um, we know that from like the 1951 Giants also did it. And there were, I think, a lot of other teams that were that were doing so. He said it's on the other team's fault that they didn't pick up on this. Um, and uh, 
yeah, there, there wasn't any sort of apology uh, there. So I, I don't know if it necessarily taints it, but, and I can't necessarily say that they would, they would or wouldn't have won the pennant without it, but they did go on a tremendous tear in September whenever all of their games were at home. So you do the math. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does seem like it helped them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I suppose if nothing else, Bob Feller could say, well, we got our sign stealing scheme because I served in World War II as opposed to buying a trash can at Menards. So, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I think it's I think it's interesting that Feller seemed to be the one that supplied it, because as as we talked about, he was the all-American boy. Yeah. He had these sort of and he always talked about these sort of values that he lived by hard work, self-reliance, blah, blah, blah. But then he's doing this more this <laughs> completely devious thing that, you know, is, is pretty dishonest uh, or at least unethical on its on its face. But, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it was savvy and, and Feller sort of recognized that he'd never been in a World Series before. It was really the only thing that, that, that his career was lacking. And so, you know, he was desperate. He needed to do it. Yeah. If, if you need the win, you do what you have to do to get the win, which is, you know, what an entrepreneur does in the end. Yeah, so that proves totally. Right. Yeah. yeah, he's a great capitalist. Yeah. <laughs> Some would say, yeah, the best capitalist of 1948. Yes. Really isn't good when the capitalists win out, doesn't that? warm your heart at the end it's yeah it, it does <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i you know i mean bill Beck talks about it obliquely in beck is in wreck hmm. and just you know it, i think that it's just kind of known as the sort of strategy of baseball and any team could have figured out apparently there was a game where i can't remember who i think it might have been joe gordon runs up a count to three and oh and then usually you know you don't swing on the next one but he does and, and decks a home run and um uh, apparently the pitcher immediately turned around and started scanning the stands huh. and the scoreboard being like, someone stole that sign. Like, wow. how did you know I was going to throw that? And so oh. then the Indians had to sort of lay off a little bit. So, you know, there were suspicions around the league. Yeah. It's amazing how that that's, I mean, that's as old as the game itself, almost in various ways totally. people try to figure out because yeah, the, the highest level the winning is paramount no matter what sometimes, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so Luke, uh, is there anything you'd like to plug while I still have you here and where can people find your book? Um, yeah, the book is called our team. Uh, they can find it at, uh, any sort of bookstore near them. If you want a, um, a signed copy, I'm signing all copies bought through my local bookstore, which is a story, bookshop. So mm. if you just go to storyabookshop.com um, and order it through there, you will get a signed copy. That's wonderful. Always support independent booksellers. Always a good thing that, uh, and I got to say that, uh, our team was the book that I bought to reward myself for getting my first dose of the vaccine. Oh. And for the second dose, I bought Rod Carew's autobiography. So that's the company you're oh, nice. in, Kaplan. <laughs> I feel so honored. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> it's been an honor talking to you this past 40 minutes. I really hey, thanks it. so much. Thank you.